Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to Peoples and Things, where we explore human life with technology. I'm Lee Vinsel. Hey, remember when ride-sharing company Uber was supposedly some kind of technological revolution, and then we realized that it was a perennially unprofitable cab company? Oh boy, that was some good shit, huh? A lot of people, both boosters and critics, got things very wrong during Uber's early days. Like, for example, some critics predicted that gig work would eat up larger and larger portions of the economy, but this prediction has not panned out. Both hype and criti-hype give you unrealistic pictures of the present and expectations of the future if you buy into them. But even as Uber and Lyft remain highly unprofitable enterprises with unclear futures, they have managed to do a fair amount of economic and social damage. In the meantime, my favorite book on this topic so far is Disrupting DC, The Rise of Uber in the Fall of the City by Katie Wells, Kafui Atto, and Declan Cullen. And the reason why I like this book is precisely because of its focus on urban governance. The authors show that many people in Washington, D.C. took on a mindset akin to let Uber do it when facing any number of social problems, and that this mindset stemmed less from any real faith that Uber would do a good job than in a profound distrust in and pessimism about city government being able to do anything productive at all. In this episode, I talked to Wells and Atto about this new book, which drops this week. Hey, congrats to the authors. And hey, you should check out this book. I had a great time talking with Katie and Kafui. I hope you enjoy it. Hey, get excited. Thanks so much for taking the time to talk to hey, me today. Hey, it's great to be here. Great to be here. So I really enjoyed, I, first of all, I want to say, you guys, it's a very well-written book. I, I read a lot of books in this trade, and I thought like, oh, it's so clear, it's really nice, so good work, and cheers. Thank you. That. Um, disrupting, it's, it's a cool book, so Disrupting DC, when you explain it to strangers, what do you say about it, and what were you trying to do with it? You know, when, when I talk to strangers about the book, I say, hey, you ever taken that thing called Uber? Yeah. Well, I think about, we wrote a book about how it's changing the way cities work. It's a story, mm -hmm. you know, I say, look, I'm a geographer. I study urban change. How did I get wrapped up in this Uber tech thing? Well, because it's impossible to think about the way cities work without noticing the role of tech. Mm-hmm. Kofui, do you want to add anything well, to that? Well, I, I, you guys yeah, do this so rip I, all day know, long. Obviously, people have asked me, you know, what the book is about. And um, then I talk for mm -hmm. 10 minutes and their eyes roll back in their head. So I haven't quite got the 
Oh. <laughs> uh, believe me, brother, I know the feeling. Pitch, but I kind of say what you know, Katie. Katie says, though less elegantly, mm-hmm. I often say, uh, you know, it's about Uber and about the politics of of cities and how Uber has intervened in the politics of of cities. Um, so I, I try to I try to talk about it. I try to put I try to say politics, you know, multiple times. Yeah. Mm-hmm. No, that's right. We thought the book was going to be called like Uber's Urban Politics. I mean, there is an argument to be made that it was sort of about its attempt yeah. to, you know, get rid of the kind of politics that we were pushing for, you know, in a moment of mm-hmm. far right, you know, fascist attempts. We see Uber as, you know, like something as building something that's not sort of a democratic urban politics that we actually want. Mm hmm. I said I thought it was interesting. I mean, you you all draw on uh, a number of different literatures, including literatures centrally focused on technology, but also there's a real rootedness in studies of urban governance is like the frame. And so I just kind of give listeners a little background about like where studies of urban governance have been for the last couple decades. And then uh and, you know, like what you were trying to contribute to that conversation. Kofui, it looks like you've been okay. volunteered on this one is what I right, think that right. finger was doing. Well, so well, so maybe just some context, you know, so both Katie, yeah. um, Declan and I, you know, came out of a, a geography program. And, you know, we consider ourselves, okay. you know, urban, urban geographers. Um, and, you know, there is a there is a. Um, a thread in kind of urban geography, but it's, it's, there's also, it's, it's not limited to geography. There's a whole bunch of work in political science, um, sociology Mm -hmm. that is interested in uh, kind of what cities can do. (laughs) Like what is, what is politically possible in, Mm -hmm. in cities and how that, you know, shaped by broader economic, um, uh, changes or transformations. So, um, mm-hmm. you know, what, in, in what ways can cities better their lives of me and you? Um, how, how can yeah. we as citizens elect mayors or council people um, uh, with the idea that they'll actually do, do something uh, for, for us and especially for, you know, the, the, the least among us in in cities, and I think so. In all those different disciplines, there was kind of a recognition, you know, starting in the the late late seventies and you know through the eighties with deindustrialization that the uh, cities were con- cities were constrained politically, mayors were constrained politically, yeah. um, that the kind of um, I don't know how else to describe it, distributionist um, politics of a previous era were, um, were, were no longer, uh, you know, at, uh, that sort of politics had, had, was, was gone. Um, and we were entering a kind of yeah. neoliberal kind of era. Hate to drop the neoliberal word, but that, I don't know how else to describe it. <laughs> the uh, kind of a sense that... Mm-hmm. Um, Cities, in trying to better the lives of people, had a very narrow range of policy um, interventions, and those were, um, you know, uh, promote real estate, 
cut government spending at the local level, engage in public-private partnerships, mm-hmm. um, rely increasingly on the mm-hmm. private sector, um, try to, you know, um, uh, you know, try to encourage uh, real estate development, uh, you know, oftentimes in a speculative manner, rather than, you know, mm-hmm. um, the kind of industrial policy that, you know, had defined the you know, the previous era. So that was the kind of literature I can name, you know, name some names with the people. There's okay, but no, 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 yeah. no, but, that but was that's good. the kind of, in yeah. terms of urban governance, you know, what can cities do for, for the people who mm-hmm. politically, what can, you know, what, what, um, yeah, what, what is, what is local politics, public, what is local yeah. urban politics for? And- yeah. And that was sort of the get-go. When we started this research in 2016, one of the things at the beginning we kept playing with was the idea of what kind of urban development is this? What kind of urban development is happening when the city, a city like D.C., is getting in bed with Uber? Is this just more of the Mm -hmm. same contracting out public-private partnerships that we've seen since the 1980s, sort of referred to by David Harvey Mm -hmm. as like the entrepreneurial city? Or is there something different afoot, right? Because in the scenario we see, Mm -hmm. right, it's not really that the city is sort of hiring Uber to do its beckoning. It's almost the opposite, where Uber is calling the shots and the city is bending down and doing its work for it. And so it felt like there was, mm-hmm. I don't know. So from the get-go, we're like, what's going on here? What is this relationship? Is it all fine and good? Yeah. And the way you put it a couple times throughout the book is like the motto becomes something like, just let Uber do it. So if Kofui is like laying out this world of constraint, then it becomes like, well, Uber's going to step in and like provision all this stuff, right? Is that the Yeah, absolutely. Case? And and in some ways, right, we follow 40 Uber drivers, but also 30 policymakers as they contend with questions about their own limitations. And we wanted to know, like, why are you getting involved with Uber? And their feeling was that they, they themselves were constrained, right? And they, mm-hmm. you know, they mm-hmm. want to provide paratransit services. They want to make sure that workers can get home at night. They want to make sure that unemployed and underemployed folks can earn extra income. And if Uber is a way to do it, like, yeah. why not? You guys had this really nice uh, couple lines I liked a lot. Uh, it was says, few with whom we spoke held up Uber as a real solution to D.C.'s transportation, racial, economic, or employment challenges, yet their expectations of the city and its democratic institutions were even lower. <laughs> it's like, uh, is that, that's kind of like, is this a kind of sad statement about our faith in democracy and just institutions generally? Yes. These yes, days, huh? right. I'm from Northeast Ohio. Like, if we don't have hope in DC, <laughs> oh, come man. on, right? Well, it's interesting yeah. because I think we toyed with a, a title for the, a different title for the book, and it was just going to be called "Lowered Expectations." I don't know if you, if there was right. a, what was it, Mad TV? There was a skit they used to do on called "Lowered." It was a hilarious oh. skit, but it it kind of captures oh. that that uh, that. That statement, that that vibe, that exactly. vibe, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I want to back up a little bit. How did your team come together? I mean, how did this is an interesting writing project involving three folks. So, how did you come together to to do this? Well, um, I was going to study Airbnb 
because I was a housing researcher, uh-huh. um, but I was qualita- qualitatively trained. Quali- I was qualitatively trained in qualitative methods. No, um, I didn't ha- figure out how to do it. And I had a babysitter take an Uber home one night. Kafui had been studying buses, which is not terribly far from Uber. And so we threw our hat mm-hmm. in the you know ring for a seed grant to study Uber. Declan at the time okay. just moved to DC and we said, Hey, <laughs> and it got started like that pretty much. I mean, we all went to grad school together, right? So we come at this with a very okay. simple, we went to grad school in upstate New York at Syracuse university. We all overlapped okay. and graduated within a year of each other. Um, so we, I don't want to say we came of age together, but we, you know, have a certain level of trust, understanding, you know, resources. Yeah. So important when you're doing work together. So um, you said that you started saying a bit about it earlier, but what kind of just what kind of work did you what kind of research did you do for the book? Yeah, sure. So um, we uh, we did interviews. (laughs) So, you know, we which is we 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 tried to. um, Well, it's it's an interesting story, actually, in in terms of how we we came to it. So our original plan was to um recruit uber drivers uh by using the grant money we had gotten to pay for mm-hmm. Declan to take to take rides basically throughout DC and oh. you know we we printed out these little little cards with like a link to a you know survey monkey and um and uh it was like a complete disaster like Declan took some rides, like no one wanted to talk to him. He, we weren't getting any, any bites. Or, and, or the ones that did, right? We're like, yeah, yeah, I'll call you. I'll call you. Nobody right. called. So, so we just, there was so little up, up, up take, uh, what is the word? Yeah. So little, our yeah. recruitment strategy kind of wasn't working. And so we moved online and we posted, um, a kind of, the the survey to uh, a, a chat room. Um, what was it called? Uberpeople.net, which um, and and of course we we had incentives for the for the for the people who spoke to us, um, and then they came flooding in, <laughs> and then you know this was like, oh, wow. it was kind of intense because it you know Survey Monkey allows you to track the IP address of where you know, the people are filling it out. And so we were getting people filling out the survey in like Kuala Lumpur. <laughs> and so we ultimately we had to kind of narrow it down, but that became both, uh, you know, we, we collected information from them, uh, uh, you know, demographic information, um, educational attainment information, but it also became the, the pool of people that we could reach out to for more extended interviews, mm-hmm. which, you know. And in-person surveys. We ended up trashing all that data. I don't know if you remember. Right. right. We actually trashed all that survey data because mm-hmm. we felt like we couldn't confirm it, but right. we used it as a way to meet in person those 40 first drivers. Okay. Right. Which yeah. was hard. Okay. So, and then, well, uh, well, then I think, interestingly enough, like, during this period when we were struggling to talk with drivers, we did set up interviews with policymakers, and some of those interviews were really fascinating, like really interesting. And so I think we had these two tracks mm-hmm. 
I don't know if I'm remembering this right, Katie, but <laughs> I think, you know, we had these two tracks where it was like, we'll just talk to drivers and then talk to people about, you know, Uber as a, mm -hmm. you know, this thing that's happening in, in the city at this time. This is all in 2016, right? Yeah, 2016, 17. Yeah. But we did a longitudinal study, right? That's a setup. But what made the project fun, I think, for me was that we went back to the same group of folks year after year after mm -hmm. year and did the same similar interviews and surveys. So we're able to get a great sense of people's lives as they moved on and off the app, as well as policymakers, you mm -hmm. know, sort of own thinking as they contended with questions about, should I like regulate this thing now or like not? Yeah. Yeah. Right. So set the scene for us, uh, you know, in 2011, 2012, when Uber first comes into D.C., uh, DC's a six city in the states. Is that right? So, like, what what is the scene? What happens when Uber enters DC? At that um, well, Uber starts up illegally, as it does in all of the places where it operates. Um, yeah. And within a few months, it pissed off the local taxi regulators, rightly so. And so, um, in response to this flagrant, uh, flagrant or vagrant, which flag. Flagrant, flagrant, like yeah. Um, yeah. Flagrant disregard for law. Um, the local uh, taxi regulator Ron Linton staged a um, a sting, and he ordered an Uber from his smartphone. Um, took it to a hotel in downtown DC where he had um, folks waiting to arrest the. Um, oh, I guess not arrest, right? Just give a. What was it, Cuffley? Give them like a, a sixteen and impound the car. Six, yeah. Oh, impound. Yeah. That's, that's right. Impound the car and give him a sixteen hundred dollar wow. fine, which right. Uber supposedly paid then. Um, but it began sort yeah. of, you know, Travis Kalanick, the former um, CEO or CEO or co-founder of Uber. You know, he showed up at DC Council, you know, more than once. Was really combative and made DC in many ways sort of um, out to look silly. Um, for not bowing yeah. down more quickly, though it did in the end. Another piece mm -hmm. of that in that same year in 2012, I, I think we it comes up multiple times in the book is the kind of Operation Rolling Thunder, which is you know so no yeah. relationship to Vietnam, right? <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. Um, it, so you know, basically in that you know after the Linton sting. Um, I think it was June or July, there was an attempt um, by the council to to impose some kind of minimum regulations on on Uber, which, you know, which, which was it had just be just started. Um, and, you know, mm -hmm. it was basically uh, to regulate the how they collect fares. Um, you know, in, in part of it was setting kind of a, a floor. Um, um, but so in response to that attempt, uh, Uber basically reached out to all of the people who had taken the service because it's, you know, a service you use on your phone. So I had their phone number or an email and they you yeah, know, basically yeah. pe petitioned the people to petition their elected officials to um, strike down any regulation. And, and it. Uh, at you know at the time it was, it was kind of a huge deal i mean the the 
the inboxes of the elected officials were like flooded. I mean, this is like real political participation. And so you have these council people who are you know, probably not used to like getting so much pushback from, yeah. from this kind of this group of people. And, I think the figure was 50,000 50, in, in 24 I think in a 24 yeah. hour period yeah, it, was it was wild. Yeah. Less than 24 So it it hours. it yeah. was kind of, it, yeah. you know the, and the, we we take we tell the story because we we think it it it's kind of it captures the the political mm. power that Uber it was a flex. Mm-hmm. I mean, they, that was a real flex, like a real flex from the tech sector and they and they knew it. So um basically it it starts from there. What does this, what does this mean? <laughs> How do we make sense of this? I was wondering, I mean, like, like how much, cause we have, you know, we all know Uber just starts illegally. They just do this thing and, you know, they just go for it. Right. And that's seems real bad. Uh, it is bad. In fact, I, I, uh, but it also, I always wonder how much of, the response to it had to do with how unsympathetic the taxi industry was in so many places. I mean, I was, so I was in, you know, I was in New Jersey. I was in Hoboken right outside Manhattan when all this was happening in 2012. I had just started as a professor and I was talking about this stuff in class because I taught a class called computers and society. So this is what I was doing. You know, I was constantly talking about current events. And in fact, like a huge portion of the class was just talking about current events with undergrads. And so I was talking about this stuff as it was happening. And I was like, this is because I'm like a pro-regulation guy. My first book is on automobile regulation. I'm into regulation. I'm like, this is this is not how you do this, right? You don't just go into places and do illegal shit, right? That's not how you do it. And like my the undergrads were totally not with me. They're like, the taxi companies are bad. I mean, it's a it's like a it's corrupt, it's a grift. And and so, like, I just wonder how much that kind of, like, set up the, the scenario so that people didn't react to, to Travis being an asshole the way they should have. You know? Absolutely. Right. I mean, that's part of it. But the other part of it, right, is that it's not as if the public transit system was something to celebrate anyway. I mean, right. it's, see, we could tell we could tell yeah, the story is a perfect DC, storm. Right? I don't think that's quite right. But certainly yeah. it's not as if the private, you know, chauffeur services in the U.S. were regulated in a good way. They hadn't protected good jobs. They hadn't protected jobs in a good way, yeah. right, compared to other places in the world. So I'm sure that was a contributing factor. And I think that's one of sort of the aims of our yeah. book is to help people see Uber as a symptom of all these existing problems and broken infrastructure. Yeah, I think yeah. those. You know, the, it's interesting you you say that. I mean, it that came up in our interviews. It came up in the everything mm. we found in terms of the what people sent to their council people, which is the taxis suck. What do you <laughs> the Uber? You know, the U- Uber actually yeah, comes. Yeah. And I, I think it. You know, I think part of you know it's like <laughs> yeah. it's a it was a perfect storm. But you know, how do we describe that storm? And I think it's like this just general disillusionment with legacy institutions, like legacy institutions, whether it's, you know, a defunct and sclerotic taxi system, whether it's the regulators who ostensibly are supposed to make sure the taxi system works, whether it's, you know, officials at the city who are 
you know, who have let a mass transit system fall apart over the course of many decades. So just this uh, kind of just generalized disillusionment with the the status quo and then Mm -hmm. and and then Uber appears and it's it's shiny. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, you know, like many new technologies. Yes. And it did help you, right? And it did show yeah. up, you know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Um, so by the time you guys started, when you started interviewing policymakers, uh, it's 2016? 20, is that when you started? So where were, where, where were people at? Then, when you started, when when you were thinking about regulate regulating Uber and regulation and this, yeah, sure, yeah. Um, give a shot? Let's see. You know, I so we uh, one one interview or two stand out. I think we did an interview with um people like regu- transportation officials at DC's DOT and mm-hmm. and um, what was noticeable about the interview was that they were they were just like. Uh, yeah, we haven't thought about it. <laughs> we haven't thought about Uber. Like we, 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 you know, we're still trying to figure it out. Um, and I, I, I think, wow. though early on it, it was this, you know, and that, that happened in multiple, you know, instances where, um, you know, we're talking to people who are, you know, appointed or have positions of power in, in the city and, you know, whether they're either don't know or ha- don't have a kind of firm opinion on it or kind of a wait and see approach um, or they're generally positive, mm-hmm. you know, um, that that would change over the course of the, you know, t- time we, we, yes. we were doing interviews. And I think, you know, um, Uber's reputational stock just kind of <laughs> was on a, a Travis's yeah, right. Stock. So the yeah. whole, the whole, you know, yeah, th- that was a bubble too. <laughs> so that I think that the yeah. whole kind of, you know, the, the public view of Uber, you know, would 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 change. But early on, it was this kind of eh, yeah, it, it's a curious little thing. I don't know, um, yeah, mm-hmm. which is telling in itself. Mm-hmm. And with yeah. and with the change over time, we also saw change in policy. Right. So even right. this year, D.C. Mm-hmm. added with its budget a new tax on a 25 cent tax or surcharge on ride hailing, which is going to raise nine million dollars to fund overnight, 12 overnight bus mm-hmm. lines. That's the kind of thing that 10 years ago I could never imagine. That there was a, there, there wouldn't even be a political debate much to acknowledge and agree that yes, these services are causing congestion, they're idling, yeah. pollution, they're not paying their fair share, and we're not even sure that it's helping residents. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and if they had tried it a, a decade ago, it would have gotten overturned right away. But I guess it's it's stood this right. tax. Yeah. Um. There, one thing you you mentioned that I didn't know about that I thought was fascinating was that uh I think DC had worked out with the big cab companies accessibility standards for like any fleet that had more than thirty cars or something had to have such so much percentage of it was going to be accessible, and that got totally undermined. That's just like a really fascinating case of like how this kind of like just dodging regulation has just really led to bad stuff. Yeah. I mean, we think, oh, the American Disabilities Act, what act? It doesn't even apply. What's the, I mean, 
Really, you take all these disability yeah. rights advocates and the work they've done for decades, and it just got thrown out the window, right? And it's interesting because yeah. this is it kind of parallels, you know, some of the. So I, I, Katie mentioned I had done work in public transportation. That, you know, I, that was what my first. Yeah. We can talk about buses all day, man. I get really excited about buses. So, So, you know, part of it was, you know, that taxis were relatively, they're latecomers in terms of um, responding to the mandates of the the ADA, which is to make sure, you know, um, uh, there are public accommodations for people with disabilities. Like, you know, with, with, the passage in 1990, all buses have to, to, to have that. But right. the the fight was, well, you know, taxis are, it's a, it's a public transit ish. And so those should, should apply, but it, it took so long for taxis mm-hmm. to comply. And so just at the moment when taxis are, you know, kind of making themselves accessible, you have this new entrant, which, as Katie says, is kind of taking out at the knees all the progress that, you know, and activism. I mean, the, the, the fights for wheelchair lifts on mm. taxis and on buses were the product of people with right. their wheelchairs going into the streets and stopping traffic. <laughs> you know, so yeah. all that is... These are no, not no, these are things that are products of like... struggle, advocacy, persistence. And so... Um, and you know Uber, you know, just kind of you know waddles into the scene, <laughs> and and and, and kind of yeah. just um, undermines all that. Um, that was a very interesting finding. Mm-hmm. I, you know, that was an early interview we did. I think with um, with a disability activist. Just... Yeah, one of the things you I really like about the book is you so clearly put it in the context of D.C. and really think about what's happening in D.C., uh, which is a very specific place. And so we we could have gone into like just how bad the D.C. Metro had gotten. There were all these fires. I mean, it was it was bad. Uh, fires caused by bad maintenance, by the way, just to give a little shout out. I think we write about that in the innovation delusion. So there is there's connections there. But um, uh. The second chapter, which is about kind of Uber positioning itself as this anti-racist force in the world. I mean, uh, I had dark laughter while reading this chapter. I have to say, there was this book or there's this wonderful photo that was like some uh, Uber ad campaign, like billboards. If you you tolerate racism, delete Uber. Oh, that's it was it. a way to do a play <laughs> on the um, delete Uber campaigns that were in response to Trump's uh, Muslim ban. Yeah, yeah. Okay. And so this was a way okay. for the company to rebrand the delete Uber movement and make it anti-racist. An anti-racist thing. Okay. So like, put these put these efforts in the context of DC, which obviously has you know, very famously has, you know, a very rich racial history and all kinds of racial issues too. So, I mean, how did, how did uh, Uber's attempt to brand itself kind of play out in the DC uh, area? Okay. <laughs> so I, <laughs> um, so this is, it's, I, it's funny cause I, I have so much to say about this particular chapter and also the, the, 
the process of writing it and trying trying to figure out. Um, uh-huh. Part of it is that you know, and this was because Katie is a DC scholar, you know, and ha- you know has mm-hmm. and lived there from decades there's so much that we didn't didn't include in terms of the racial history of of dc but mm-hmm. you know i think um w- one of the things that we were tr- trying to do in that chapter is to um both look at you know the kind of cynical use of race and kind of uber's own campaign but but to also think about you know the kind of racial tensions in the city in kind of two respects. The first respect mm-hmm. is just the, the taxis. That is the experience of, you know, African-Americans in, in DC and with, with the taxi system and not going to the places they want to go and not picking them up. And that being mm-hmm. a very real, a real thing. Um, and, totally. but then also I think bigger picture, the, the kind of tensions around, the uh, transformations of DC demographically, the kind of the the question of uh, right. gentrification, you know, um, urban, you know, urban evolution, the kind of uh, there's just there's a, a larger white population and a, a relatively shrinking black population in a city that you know had been. Uh, given the name chocolate city. So I, you know, I think the, mm-hmm. the part of this you know, Uber actually allows us to tell that story. And that story also allows us to mm-hmm. talk about why Uber found such, um, res- was resonated with purchase. Yeah. Purchase. Yeah. Perfect word purchase with people. Um, and, uh, I think that, you know, it, it yeah. Right. So we have Uber, you know, I think in a deeply cynical way, pitching itself as a kind of answer to these kind of broader, what we would argue are structural problems, <laughs> you know, the, yeah. the, that are rooted in kind of the history of our history, our nation's history. Um, um, but but mm-hmm. all you need now is an app and and <laughs> the, the, the problem is solved yeah. and, and how that kind of... Uh, solution on the cheap is uh is um has again to use katie's word political purchase because for you know people on you know legislators council people you know dealing with the structural issues of racism in dc the kind of limits of that are the constraints on dc in terms of revenue and making sure that money <laughs> for to to provide public services um mm-hmm. you know dealing with that and the racial consequences of of that um is a is a lot <laughs> as we say in the early chapters like they they are constrained so uber suddenly becomes a yeah. a kind of a a very attractive solution for you know political solution to these kind of stickier problems. I don't know, Katie, uh, mm-hmm. it's probably more about... Th- no, yeah, Katie. no, I mean, that was great. No, that was great, man. And I, yeah, I mean, I think the yeah, reality is, good. right, this is like, this is contested land. There's a lot of strangers living here. It historically has been a place for the Black liberation movements. 
right? And so mm-hmm. there is such irony and just such discomfort, right, with the reality that this corporation yeah. has been able to sell itself as anti-racist, right? We didn't want to discount the reality of all these people who are so happy to have, you know, a chauffeured car come to get them with a little blue dot, right? But the reality is it's really messy on the ground, right? Because the taxi industry used to be a way for immigrants and especially African-Americans to make a decent income and sustain their families. Whereas now, Mm -hmm. right, it's mostly... West Africans, it's most, I mean, or East Africans, I'm sorry, it's mostly, you know, Ethiopian, Eritrean folks who are doing it right, who are less able to do it. And so there's also been this sort of, it's not really a black, black, like it's, it's a messier picture when we look at the racism inherent against taxis, right? Not just the racism of taxis, but the racism against taxis. Um, Mm -hmm. Totally. And so Uber just comes in. It's like, hey, I'll solve all your problems. Yeah. But I think it's, imp- yeah, I think it's impossible to look at okay. Uber without thinking about it as playing up those, you know, like like wedging itself in really comfortably to those divides. Yeah. Sorry. Right. And this is even pre-Black Lives Matter, right? But, um, you know, they saw it as politically uh, – uh, efficacious to uh to to sell this message, I guess. You were gonna say something about the innovation delusion, maybe. Oh, just when we, you know, when we were writing that book, it was like we would just when we we're kind of beating up on innovation speak and like the stupidity of the app economy. We were pumping in like I would just do searches like apps to fight poverty. And you would inevitably get some kind of listicle, like the top 10 apps for like beating poverty, right? And there was one, there was a top 10 list for like beating racism. And I can imagine like, I I don't think Uber was on there when (laughs) I searched it, but you can imagine it. No, but I mean, that's one of the things Airbnb made this campaign, right? When it was trying to fight regulation in one of its cities, it was showing, right, all of the women of color that benefit by being able to rent out a room. So any regulations on Airbnb is a regulation against independence and sovereignty of women of color, Mm -hmm. right? We saw this when Spike Mm -hmm. Lee, literally, like for real Spike Lee, did, you know, these videos Mm -hmm. for Uber of the Brooklyn Hustle. Okay. If you haven't seen them, Lee, you might want to look them up. They still exist. Yeah. Right. But it was about glorifying this idea of this is a way to make the hustle legit. Mm -hmm. Um, And we even look, Mm -hmm. we see it. Oh, I'm sorry. I would say we even see it this, you know, this season, this in spring, Joe Biden celebrated, I think, DoorDash because DoorDash is going to help solve, you know, American food deserts. Right. right? I mean, we we constantly see the same story, whether it's food deserts or racial inequality. There's an Mm -hmm. app for it. There's an app for that. Uh, well, I mean, I think that cues up the chapter on data pretty well, actually. So uh, this is kind of a, I was thinking, I, I, fascinating chapter on like the promise of data sharing um, around these apps and, and Uber. And first of all, I mean, you guys had a lot of interesting things to say about the labor that goes into creating the data. So, I mean, why, why don't we just start there? I mean, Uber set up like the set, like, Uber, what is Uber going to do with this data? Or what, what is it giving to cities that's supposed to be so promising? Um, so, you know, okay, so the, 
so data they're, <laughs> they're going to give cities data but but i think it, it's um so part of what we you know let me let me step back so th this chapter is was actually we had written a paper uh, like an academic paper mm. that you know this chapter is a kind of uh it's a it's an inspired by this other paper we had written and yeah, yeah, yeah. and that you know that paper took its starting point with the launch um i don't remember the year 2018 maybe of this thing called uber movement which was basically this this data sharing platform that uber had launched mm -hmm. which would give cities all sorts of information about themselves Right, it would give them data about traffic mm -hmm. patterns, where people are picking up and taking rides, where, you know, even the condition of conditions of the streets, because apparently your phone picks up, you know, potholes and stuff like that. So, you know, Uber okay. basically yep. claims through, you know, that it has collected a tremendous amount of data about um, about the city, about the people in the city, people who use it, people who um drive for it and that cities can cities you could have it <laughs> now, you know you can have some of this have some of this data and part of what we were kind of toying with both in the the article and then in the chapter was to to, to kind of complicate that story in two ways one way was to say mm -hmm. like look there's um you know this data is doesn't emerge from the ether it, it's the product of people working <laughs> you know it it's the it's the product mm -hmm. of 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 labor it's the product of drivers drivers are producing this data and and mm -hmm. it, it's important to remember that it's important to think about the conditions that give rise to the data um and once you mm -hmm. do that you begin to think about questions of ownership and if the data how important the data is in terms of uh their your evaluation as a company for example like um mm -hmm. uh, right. then well to what degree do drivers or other people who are producing data have ownership over that valuation this and the mm -hmm. second kind of tack in was to say well what is the what is the data going to be used for anyway yeah how, how can how important is it yeah, how important exactly. is it for for cities to to do and it's interesting yeah. because i think we came to that latter point like later in the process like we had presented this sure. this whole argument about labor and data and how you know yeah but we all did we all right. did right i mean this is the thing i mean this your book there's tons of stuff that's going to be uh, is insightful into what we're experiencing right now and will in continue to be really important analysis for the years to come. But there's also parts, because it's a constantly evolving picture, that feel like they were a part of like that 2017, 2018, 2019 moment, right? And like the smart cities, yeah. the promise of data. It was, this was the moment, right? Where like we were gonna datafy the shit out of cities and it was gonna be like yes. magic. But it was like always like, what? 
What exactly? Well, is and we fell for that again? shit. You know? I mean, that's a problem, right? That's what mm. Kafwi's gesturing yeah. toward. <laughs> yeah. Is that we sort of by yeah. the end are like, look, if we can just see the data, if we can just get access to the data, if we can yeah. just make Uber. Oh, we really? I mean, it's you. It's like yeah, but like we were that, in the midst of this and still doing it, saying if the if the city just gets yeah, access to Uber's data, and which I still kind of believe. But if we like, you know, and finally we were at this, we were giving a talk, and someone's like, yeah, but like, what do you, what? What was the question, Coffee? It was like, why? To what end? Like, what are you going to do with more data? And we were, we were flummoxed. (laughs) I remember getting the question and, and I mean, I think my, (laughs) my, 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 you know, because I'm an academic, I was kind of like very defensive and being like, no, I just, let me, if I just have 20 (laughs) minutes, I can explain it to to explain why it's so important. But, but then as, you know, as I was thinking about it, I was like, oh, no, Um, no, she's, she's absolutely right. Like we are. We have, yeah. we've kind of fallen for it. So that chapter is interesting because I think it, you know, it tracks our evolution, <laughs> you know, over the course of the, the mm-hmm. research where, you know, we're very concerned with, you know, Uber has this data, we should get it. City should have it. And then by the yeah. end of the chapter, we're like, oh, that, that, that we've fallen for it. You know, that, that kind of, um, yeah. that sort of thing. And I, I think... I honestly think the labor piece of it still holds as a way of, of thinking about it. Oh, but, totally. But yeah, it, mm-hmm. yeah, it, it's, um, well, and I still believe, I mean, you know, I follow Meredith Whitaker and other folks who think that we should open up these companies data actually to governments and other, maybe other folks too. So, I mean, I still think there's something to be said about opening yes, up that data. Absolutely. It's just, I think, that was a moment where it was like there was a lot of overpromising around data in general, right? I mean, maybe big data might have just been going out, but those kind of terms were Yeah, around, and I, right? I think that going back to the first tack or the first point of that chapter, right, of data about who makes the data, right, contributes mm-hmm. to Meredith Whitaker's point and others that like these should these are we've made it the public has made this data, right? And so yeah, the public totally. as some collective governable you know, entity has the right to, you know, its its um mm-hmm. benefits. So the other thing, I mean, go, this is perfect. Going from like smart cities and data and all this kind of stuff right into self driving cars. I mean, this is another thing that, like, I mean, look, there are self driving cabs on some streets. Uh, I think in California, I can't remember where they were at. They're in the states. They're kind of functioning um lead but did you see the uh, new there was, was some like, like lovely twitter thread today about people putting um orange traffic cones on the vehicles like top to make them stop working <laughs> oh really i love it well i mean <laughs> that's like, all it takes to disable them about, honey though. is just an orange traffic cone <laughs> i mean <laughs> yeah i like what do they call that oppositional hacking or i can't remember the, the term but I luddite ludditeism this is the moment though there's so much there's so much promise around self-driving cars and by now lyft and uber have both sold off their autonomous uh uh vehicle yeah yep. you know units and uh i mean it's just not really a real central part of the vision anymore it doesn't seem like but yeah, I mean, so what did you see coming at it from your lens of DC and how you're thinking about urban governance? What was the promise of self-driving vehicles all about as an ideology? It was to dissuade the public from focusing on the present. That's right. 
I mean, it, it was a way to neuter, right? The really messy reality of right yeah. now as a way to be like, don't worry, just look, look down the jetway. Don't worry what's going on right here. Just keep your eyes forward. <laughs> I mean, it did. That was uh -huh. what was so interesting about the AVs. And Declan, if he was here, would tell you how hooked he was on this from the beginning. Was this idea, it kept coming mm. up in interviews with drivers where they would bring up this specter of automation. It was like, and it was almost a way yeah. to disable their own, the to flip back to chapter two, to disable the work they had done to say, well, look, my job's going to disappear anyway because flying cars are going to arrive, right? So why work to improve this or better it or change it because it's going to disappear? And it was wild to hear policymakers echo a similar fatalism about what automation yeah. will do to place and power. Um, so it was fascinating to watch an idea, you know, sort of travel across time and still build absolutely nearly nothing. Right. Yeah. And yes. it's interesting to, because I think the, that, totally. that last, or the, that chapter, you know, it, Declan had written on a piece for Descent magazine, uh, you know, before, which, mm -hmm. which kind of articulated, you know, it, again, like, we we move from that piece to this kind of this chapter and you know i think he mm -hmm. i think there was a sense that honestly we weren't quite sure about what a where the avs were going to go i mean we're not <laughs> we're not engineers we, yeah. we, it's hard to assess any of this stuff what we can say is what mm -hmm. what they what function they serve now and going back to katie's point that is like as a disincentive for workers seeing any future in the job. So tons of interviews being like, mm -hmm. Hey, look, I, I, I don't, this job isn't great. It, you know, it serves my needs now, but honestly, it's not going to be here forever. But then I think there was two other pieces, mm -hmm. which one, one, which was just, you know, that I, this is like the, innovation delusion <laughs> the 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 kind of the degree to which innovation is, is central to a kind of speculative economy that it provides a yeah a, um an asset class in which to invest <laughs> and people have tons of money they don't know where yeah. to put it and you know and they and there's oh, yeah. some places that you know the, the places to get a higher return you need a more risky investment outlet and so it means mm -hmm. seeing these these kind of avs as disciplining labor providing a surplus a outlet for surplus uh capital and and again promising solutions to problems in the present that politically seem you know uh too tough to to to, to tackle. So I was just in Charlotte, North Carolina, and we were walking downtown and the, it reminded me of the chapter and we saw one of these security robots there. It looks like, um, Oh yeah. A cooler, right? Yeah. It, <laughs> it looks like a, yeah, like a, a futuristic <laughs> fridge on wheels. And, 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 it, and, and it's like the, the, it's so unclear what security purpose it, Conserve. You can see where the yeah, camera yeah. is. You could just put a piece of paper over the camera, and it would be it would yeah, be yeah. disabled. <laughs> you could outrun it. You could topple it over. But it's not oh, like wow. it's like the spectacle of innovation has this other kind of role. It's just like, yeah, it's, yeah, yeah. 
Well, I just pulled up Uber's yeah. stock price, you know? I mean, like, and the, you, the moment, this yeah. 16, 17, 18 moment, oh, yeah. it was pretty hot. It's going right? to save the world, Lee. Yeah. <laughs> I know. Yeah, get him. Well, and this uh, this self-driving car thing, man, talk about uh, academics falling for stuff. I mean, I I knew so many people in my field who were like doing all this, like, what are we going to, how are we going to manage the ethical, legal, and social implications of self-driving cars, you know? And like, they were mocking, they were like doing like futures or imaginaries or some crap around self-driving cars where they're like, oh, we won't need parking garages anymore. And they're like, no, we'll turn that all into parks. And they're just doing all these kind of... It was like they really. I mean, especially for it, you know? in a moment amazing. of climate change when the Earth is on fire, it is wild to me that we are still pursuing the idea of individual metal boxes going around spouting fossil fuels. I know. Like what? I know. Uh, and even EVs, we had a. I have a, a, a good episode uh, with Bob Charette on that EVs was a great one and uh, their limits. Well, thank you. Um, so. I like your. I really like your focus on cities and governance. There's so much written. There has been so much written. Some of it really good. Some of it not so good. Maybe stuff on uh, workers and and Uber and Lyft and the the sharing economy. So what did you guys want to do with the the final chapter on workers and the workforce? I mean, what what did you really want it to be like your thing there in this kind of mix? Huffy, what did we want our thing to be? <laughs> <laughs> sometimes oh. you don't know okay well i'll give it a go i mean i think <laughs> i mean i i um so the the this project started with a focus on on workers you know that, that was our original mm -hmm. our you know our, our original focus um you know mm -hmm. through those interviews we we realized oh we should be thinking you know we should think be thinking about the urban environment in which workers live to make sense of why they're in this industry or why this industry has taken yeah. off or why it's been successful. So it you know, started with workers. We scaled up to the city. But I think like in terms of mm -hmm. thinking about change and transformation and, you know, how we move forward, I think going back to workers actually makes the most sense. Um, yeah. They're not only, they're, they, they are not only workers, they're citizens <laughs> and understanding, you know, mm -hmm. their motivations and how they think politically or don't think politically about their work or the contradictions yeah. between how they see their work and how they live in the city. Engaging workers seems to be um, yeah. a, a, a way to, yeah. So, a way forward. Yeah. Right. And the right place, right? Yeah. We're not sort of knocking on factories doors, right? For change. This is a different mm -hmm. kind of political movement, especially coming out of think of um, Occupy Wall Street, but also Tahiri Square. Like there was, you know, there was a different kind of gathering point in which the public is becoming mm -hmm. visible. And the 2019 strikes felt to us like something we needed to document. And I will say that even last mm -hmm. month, there were strikes again in D.C. at the airport in the same place, mm -hmm. right? And I think that's not coincidental. It's a place in which mm -hmm. drivers gather. They get to know each other. They build relationships. And so if mm -hmm. there was a contribution that our work has to all the existing wonderful work on the gig economy and its workers, it was to mm -hmm. inject place 
and to think about the place, the workplace mm-hmm. where people gather and how they exercise power in those places or don't, right? I mean, one of the things we've learned mm-hmm. this week is that just like in 2019, the drivers that recently organized a DCA last month, many of them have been deactivated again, like clockwork. Hmm. Wow. How do they how how do they see How does that? who see what? Uh the Uber deactivation. Yeah, Uber finds drivers? there's issues with their paperwork. There, you know, some kind of thing, oh, right? I see. There's yeah, some, yeah, yeah. there. There's also increased okay. police presence at the airport. There's some kind of strong mm. relationship between the airport police authorities and these companies. I see. All right. No, well, it is dark. right. But again, if there's going to be a response, right, it can't just be the customer base organizing. We also hope for it to be workers yeah. and for workers to see themselves as. Um, not just toiling in this shitty workplace, but also sort of being set up to fail a bit, that it's not their own shortcomings mm-hmm. if they hit barriers. Um. When I was reading this, I w- I've always found puzzling. I went to try to find these uh, surveys, and they're like by newspapers, so God knows what the quality is. But um, I've often been puzzled by how many at a time, how many drivers were reporting like being fairly satisfied with their with their um work. And um this has apparently gone down in the last couple of years from what I was seeing uh when I was looking at this the last few days. But at one point they were like fairly satisfied. So I just wondered if that came out in your interviews too. Yeah. I mean some of the work oh coffee, do you want to take this? No, I mean, that was something we struggled with at each interim. Every time we would cycle back to workers, right? We'd want to know both. And we would ask these questions multiple times, as good qualitative researchers do who seek out triangulation, right? So would you recommend this job to a friend? What would you say to a friend who is going to do this? You know, what do you wish you would have known before you Mm -hmm. started it? Will you be doing this job in six months? And one thing that kept coming up was that even if people were really, really frustrated with the job and angry and felt they had been cheated... They still Mm -hmm. often saw themselves as sticking with it for a while. Now, that didn't always hold the case, you know, when we'd circle back and ask them. Um, But in many ways, right, that was more reflection of their other labor market opportunities, I think. And they're, mm-hmm. you know, they have to take That's their dad true. to dialysis. They have to pick up their kid, you know, you know, f- uh, for a doctor's mm-hmm. appointment. They, they have all kinds of responsibilities for which they have no social safety net, either, you know, sort of other humans mm-hmm. to help care for them or, you know, financial resources. And so, sure, you know, this is yeah. a, you know, if, if the city's response is just let Uber do it, then I think a lot of the workers' response was, well, who else is going to help us accept Uber? Right. Wh- what mm-hmm. other way can we pick up money and, um, and it's flexible too. I mean, that's well. One there's a prospect real, right? of flexibility. It doesn't mean there actually is, Lee, because mm-hmm. it means you can log on. It doesn't mean you're guaranteed any jobs, right? But oh, there is a possibility, sure. and sure. that possibility is a step up from the W two jobs that so many of the workers have toiled in, right? In which they already were algorithmically right. managed, right? You work for the Gap or Applebee's. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean you're going to have like a set schedule, oh, yeah. and it doesn't even mean you know no. what time you get off on Saturday. So yeah, this is a step yeah, up, yeah. right, from an otherwise shitty work, you know, environment. Yeah. Totally. Well, I was going to say Definitely that I think the this was uh, just reflecting on, you know, our own kind of uh, the assumptions we brought to the work. You know, I, I think we mm-hmm. 
Katie, stop me if I if I'm going off the rails. But I, I, I you know, I was going to say that you know a lot. Of, you know, we came to the work with you know some priors, which were these aren't these aren't these aren't great jobs, and we we'd expect that people in them would would say that, and and we got some we got some of that. But but we also got sure. the kind of like yeah but it you know it's 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 flexible. I'm at a per, uh, I'm at a particular moment in my life, and actually this is this works perfectly mm-hmm. um, fine for me. And I think even you know with those priors, we we saw tensions and contradictions within drivers themselves. So we you'd have a driver that mm-hmm. was a shop steward <laughs> in their union at their regular. So they're they're they have a public sector job, right? Right, right. Um, you know, it, it mm-hmm. pays okay, but not great. They need extra money, um, and they're very they're involved yep. with their union, and they're working for Uber. Mm-hmm. And you ask them, you know, uh, like, what do you think about Uber? Oh, it's great. You know, do, do, should do you think mm-hmm. Uber drivers should be unionized? No, you know, and and fr- from mm-hmm. and then we, there's another example of someone who uh who loves uber um and you know during the whole um metropocalypse and whatever year it was when the all the trains mm-hmm. were broken and not working you'd have a you had we had catch catching on fire, in yeah. flames uh we we, we <laughs> had a driver who yeah. was like this is great for me this is great for business because people need rides um mm. but in you know Five minutes later in the same interview, she's talking about, oh, I would love to work for Metro because, you know, that's a middle class job. And, and, and yeah, you know, right, on, on, right, from right. one perspective, you see those as like contradictory views. But I think if you dig deeper, it's just yeah. symptomatic. <laughs> it's just symptomatic mm-hmm. of what we said in the beginning, which is people don't have faith in Uber as like a like first social mobility but they have even less faith yeah. in the institutions that exist uh, yeah. elsewhere and so it, it i think you know I, I think that's the what we were trying to get at across the the different chapters which is like you know yeah. uber uber is isn't great but it's it's symptomatic <laughs> it's symptomatic of a set of mm-hmm. lowered expectations you know, writ large across various sectors of urban life. Um, Yeah. And I should say, certainly some of the workers in our study left the gig economy never to return. I mean, absolutely. Like there was a big, you know, especially after they get their taxes a year in, I mean, there's definitely a jump, but there's other people who return or stick with it in various iterations. And totally. Yeah. So what part really in wrapping up, Kind of like we're headed towards the end. Uh, I wanted to give you y'all a chance to re- revise the conclusion again, or, you know, or like so. You in the conclusion, you talk about COVID, but and I want to do that. Talk about COVID a bit, but then we can bring it up even more to the present. Your book just came out. It was twenty twenty three. So when did it come out? Spring? August fifteen. That's not out. <laughs> oh, it's not even out yet. <laughs> Shit. Oh man. Well, I'm gonna. This is, folks, this is how <laughs> books work. You, at some point, you have to stop writing. Uh, I wanted, I wanted, but I wanted to plug you guys about things that have been happening like in recent months. So uh, let's do the COVID thing first. So uh, tell us what, add COVID to the story. 
um, we switched to online interviews. It was so much easier to schedule. People were so oh. excited to meet us. We did not oh, have man. to go Research to Panera's or the yeah. library or Starbucks. <laughs> it was like so freaking quick. Oh my God. And I think people were yeah. also excited to talk to us. And I was excited. They were willing. It was quick. It was fast. There was yeah. a loneliness, right? We were doing this in June of 2020 and May of 2020. I mean, this was sort of, we had planned yeah. to do interviews in person that summer this is the tiger um, but King sudden, period of the COVID. <laughs> it was like yeah yeah <laughs> wow bring it back off we well yeah that's that was a blast so you know yeah. people were the 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 interviews itself got raw you know the, there was more sort of intimate detail right we were talking to people in a vulnerable moment we yeah. ourselves were tired my kids were home it was messy right like yeah um, yeah. So there was an intimacy, I think, that was a gift to the project that came out of that mm -hmm. period that I would not have expected. And I wonder what our yeah. attrition rate would have been had we continued in person for those follow-up interviews in subsequent yeah. years. There's a lot more texting. I was also busy helping folks try to apply for PUA or trying to get folks um, information about how do you apply for pandemic unemployment assistance, right? It was the first time the federal mm -hmm. government offered money to... Um, gig mm -hmm. workers, $600 a week. I mean, that was huge, right? So I had, I was texting them if I saw something. It was a, the relationship changed a bit. Um, but how did COVID shape their work? Yeah. I mean, that sort of gave birth to my next project, which is around delivery. So many of them left the gig, left ride hailing work for DoorDash, uh, yeah. Instacart, Uber Eats, you know, Drizzly, Go Puff. Yeah. I mean, this was their moment to shine. Yep, yeah, sure was. Kofi, what you want to add um, anything there? No, I think that you know I, it was easier. Yeah. You know, I am in Poughkeepsie, so New York, not DC. So having in interviews with yeah. with drivers from from here was was um, a lot easier. A lot easier um, in your life, huh? Yeah. So yeah, um, yeah. I think, but I think it it you know is an interest interesting time to to look back to um i don't think we talk yeah. too much about it in the book but you know the question of what is an essential service an essential worker you know that yep. that rhetoric had kind of wasn't was had already em was emerging um and it was unclear where mm -hmm. kind of you know uber and delivery drivers fell within that you know there's just a lot of confusion about how to and anger and and anger yeah, also yeah. i should have said that right some of the workers were angry if they went to deliver food or water for somebody who looked able-bodied right? right others were mm. angry that they had to take exposure so they would put up you know like uh, yeah, um yeah. the what's oh, the plastic yeah. called not saran wrap what's it called vine not vinyl like you know the sheathing the clear oh, sheathing the, um, what do you call that plexiglass plexiglass yes no yeah Something, Some you know, with duct tape to try to yeah, keep yeah. themselves away from the, you know, aerosols. Yeah, yeah. Um, so there there were some real deep feelings about the injustices of how mm -hmm. delivery was um, and mm -hmm. ride hail were uh, distributed. And that was something that I don't remember mm -hmm. hearing three, four years earlier. Where some people said, look, mm -hmm. I'd be happy to do this work and take these risks if I knew it was for someone who was elderly or sick. Right. I'd be happy to pick them up yeah, and help yeah. them get to chemo. I'm not happy to go take somebody, you know, to a friend's house when they're flouting whatever rule that is supposed to be in place about bubbles. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. 
One of the things I wanted to ask you all about wrapping up is just you know, wrapping up. It's just um, I think it's become obvious over time just how highly unprofitable these companies are. So I mean that's amazing, right? In the earlier period when you were really starting this research, there was still a lot of promise and uh, hype around these things, and it was like, oh, they're gonna it's they're gonna set up a monopoly, and it's gonna be like they're gonna be so powerful and all this kind of stuff, right? And it's like, uh, it's not clear they're ever gonna make a profit. They're still like, I think like twenty twenty two, they were ten billion dollars. They made a monopoly last year. Uh, they did. Um, did they? I mean, aren't don't these companies together form one? I mean, is that or is that not a definition of a monopoly? I see them as these massive corporate. Well, po- I see a monopoly as right something with massive outsized power. What else could? Yeah, right. I think. A- well, I mean, well, I was gonna. Yeah, go ahead, Kafui. I mean, I'm just thinking about oh, the, the yeah, profits. I part. think it's a you know, it's a it's a great. We're in. We live in strange times. <laughs> you know, this is this is not your grandfather's capitalism. Yeah. I don't know. How else. I, I I I think there. Yeah. Declan had a great line for um, this period, Juicero capitalism, which was a reference to the kind of juicing machine, and you know, there. The, I and I think it's a, it's interesting because it. The in some ways it's like you know how people talk about zombie neoliberalism. You know, this kind of like undead mm-hmm. idea that despite all the obvious flaws just continues. There's a kind of zombie character mm-hmm. to a lot of these companies that just kind of continue to yeah. move along irrespective of quote unquote market forces. They're not being disciplined in yeah. many ways. And I think part of understanding it is that you know, they are still places where people invest in it and they are held up by faith. There's <laughs> almost a religious quality yeah. to, to, to kind of what, what, you know, what sustains yeah. them. Um, but I think there's something, I think stopping, like stopping there is probably the wrong place to stop because I think they do have like an effect on the kind of, fundamental material reality for workers which is they are they they yeah whether they are profitable or unprofitable um wh- whether the fundamentals are there which it doesn't clear it's clear they're not or not their purpose and function in the economy is to provide this kind of reserve ever-expanding reserve army of labor that presses down the wages and working conditions of people in what remains of traditional employment. And I, I, I think there's, there's, mm-hmm. I, I don't know. I mean, it, it's, it's unclear how long they can continue this, but uh, you, uh, it's. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, they've torn up a lot right, of right, shit right. in the meantime, yeah. even if Lyft like disappears, right. right? They have like done a lot of bad stuff and they've undermined public transit. I mean, they've done like, and they, you know, they were burning venture capital the whole time. That's why it was affordable for them just to take these rides. But and in think, the meantime, and I they think did a there's lot of like damage. This story, you know? I think there's this, like, broadest story. Because it's not like this is a new story. So just because, you know, my my other work is on transit, you know, there's, like, 
you know, the, hi the history of early transit is like a history of speculation, especially in like the Western cities where they're just like yeah. running track at huge expense to run transit at like yeah. five cents. And they're not, they're not making any money, but the money is in, you know, real mm -hmm. estate that the owners also own and they can sell off. But, uh, mm. but that sort of speculation, I think is, is fundamentally different. The tracks are still there when they, they get bankrupt. They can be bought yep. by the city or taken over. It's like mm -hmm. Uber could disappear and what will be, what will be, what will be, what will we be left with? We'll be left with a uh, like disinvested yeah. transit system, broken people, broken cities, less faith in <laughs> our urban politics and no real infrastructure. I mean, it's, it's different than like real estate speculation mm -hmm. in, in some ways. Logistics <laughs> software. Well, I mean, we'll have that forever. Right, That's right. it, though, right? Yeah. You know, it's like, well, we'll always order yeah. our calls or our rides from an. But app I think now, it's a great question. Whatever. I think, and I think the yeah. the way to think about it is, all right, what what ha what will happen when it disappears? Um, it, and you know, yeah. what is it doing? What happens when it disappears? And what is it doing to our society now? You know. Um, yeah. And then, right, the yeah. third is what would have had to have happened for it not to arrive on our phones. Yeah, what conditions of urban life, you know, uh, gave rise to it and what, what, what you know. Because um, yeah. it yeah. doesn't exist everywhere, right? Right. Yeah. Oh, uh, man, I have so many more questions I want to ask you about. Instead, I'm going to ask you just to say what's next. So, Katie, you're doing something on delivery? That's that is right. Project? Yep. Cool. And are you, are you, where are you at with that? You um, so I had a first or? report come out earlier this year around the working conditions of 40 Sweet. delivery workers in the D.C. area, um, as well as the lobbying activities of the six main um, delivery companies. They've spent $1.87 million in the D.C. area in the last few years. Um, right. where, where, where would folks find uh, that? I guess online. <laughs> Yeah. They, they look, look me you up, up and you find you type in Georgetown delivery study. How's okay. that? Okay, or that they works. Can go to your yep, you have a perfect. website. Or they can I have a website. It's katiejwells.net. Okay. All right. Perfect. And Kafui, what about you, man? Are you doing more buses? <laughs> I don't know what I'm doing. I'm, 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 I have. Yeah. Sorry, man. No, <laughs> he's got a great. Wait. Here. And I, I would give say a, that myself. Give a shout out go ahead, here. Go ahead. So, <laughs> well, I was gonna say your archival work. Oh yeah, I'm 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 I'm, I'm doing some. Projects I think Lee on, would be into that. Yeah, I'm doing I'm doing I'm getting excited some projects here, on yeah. um, uh, the newspaper industry, um, the archives associated with newspaper industry, the future of you know kind of local press. Um, it's very different than you know what I what I've been doing. So I'm doing a lot of reading about about it at the stage so so i something along those lines i have other yeah i've been doing a lot of local history and you know tours i do a lot of in poughkeepsie there's a abolitionist kind of uh history here and so we we can do walking tours i've been helping to do that that's <laughs> cool dude yeah. i love that so, yeah, I'm a historian by training, so I love all that stuff. And I love local history. I'm into it here where I live. So very cool. Props props to you for that. Yeah. Well, both of you, thanks you so much for coming on and taking the time to talk. Lee, to this you. was so fun. This was great. This was 
it was it's really really fun i hope you enjoyed this episode of our podcast you can reach us with questions comments and suggestions at leevinsel at gmail.com or by following me on twitter at sts underscore news or on youtube at people's things our podcast is distributed by the new books network the leading platform for academic podcasts so that you can find us wherever you get your podcasts Peoples and things, like most things in this world, depends on the work of many people. I want to thank my brother Jake Vinsel for writing the music for the show. I want to thank my buddy Juliana Castro for designing the logos for the podcast. You can check out her work at julianacastro.co. Joe Fort is the producer for the podcast, and Mandy Lamb is the production assistant. This podcast and other Peoples and Things programming are produced in affiliation with Virginia Tech Publishing and supported by the Center for Humanities and the University Libraries at Virginia Tech. For information about other podcasts from Virginia Tech Publishing, visit publishing.vt.edu. For the entire Peoples and Things team, I am Lee Vinsel. And most importantly, I want to thank you for listening. Thanks.